This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Today's episode is brought to you by The Brave Podcast. The Brave Podcast is hosted by the most interesting man in podcasting, comedian and social commentator, Felonius Monk. The Brave tells the stories of eight diverse young activists who are creating solidarity and rising up to demand change. Find The Brave on Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. Or check it out at thebraveriseup.com. And now, enjoy the show. Uh, the terror, the exhilaration that soldiers feel in combat, it's been part of war since the first humans. War is heroic, it's scary, it's horrifying. There's courage and loyalty and brotherhood and sisterhood and all these things that have made humans human for a very long time. We like to think that war is an aberration, but there's scarcely been a culture or a time when we've not been at war. It's universal. We try really hard to keep combat at a distance, but when we talk about war, we're talking about what it means to be human. Hi. I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. That was Sebastian Younger, the Peabody Award-winning journalist and Academy Award-nominated filmmaker behind Restrepo, in a new PBS documentary that attempts to answer the question, what's it like to go to war? Filled with terror, pain, and relief, war also brings exhilaration and a profound sense of purpose. In Going to War, which airs Memorial Day, 9 p.m. Eastern on PBS, renowned authors Carl Marlantis and Sebastian Younger help us make sense of this paradox and get to the heart of what it's like to be a soldier in combat. And today, Sebastian Younger joins me on the podcast to talk about his own experience going to war as an embedded reporter in Afghanistan and Bosnia. He recalls his first close call with an IED in the Korangal Valley, the fear and exhilaration of first arriving in a combat zone, and the profound sadness of witnessing young men killing each other. He says killing isn't that hard when it becomes a matter of survival, and it taps into something primal in all of us. Indeed, according to Sebastian Younger, for many soldiers, war is the most alive they've ever felt, and the bond between brothers in combat is a love that few civilians can even imagine, a love that many soldiers would willingly die for. Sebastian also discusses his own experience with PTSD, the healing power of telling war stories, what he would do if he was head of the VA, and why so many men and women in uniform feel awkward when someone comes up and tells them, thank you for your service. Coming up with Sebastian Younger in just a moment. Sebastian Younger is the number one New York Times bestselling author of Tribe, War, The Perfect Storm, Fire, and A Death in Belmont. An award-winning journalist, a contributing editor to Vanity Fair, and a special correspondent at ABC News, Younger has received a National Magazine Award and a Peabody Award. He's also an acclaimed documentary filmmaker behind four films, including Restrepo, which was nominated for an Academy Award and won the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance. Now he's featured in a PBS documentary called Going to War, which airs Memorial Day, May 28th at 9 p.m. Eastern. Sebastian Younger, welcome to the podcast. 
Thank you very much. Well, Sebastian, war is a subject that you keep coming back to time and again, whether it's your books or your documentaries. What is it about war that makes it such an inexhaustible subject for you? It's part of our human behavior, stretching back hundreds of thousands of years. My own father was a, a, a war refugee two times over uh, from the Civil War in Spain when he was a child and then from the Germans when they, when they um, took over France. Um, and I, you know, I grew up in a very sort of safe suburb and I was very curious about this sort of ultimate catastrophe and I went off to war in the early 90s to cover the Civil War in Bosnia you know, before the U.S. was there, obviously. And I continued covering civil wars as a journalist and eventually wound up with American soldiers in East, eastern Afghanistan in 2007. So Bosnia was your first assignment in the field of combat. It wasn't an assignment. I just put a sleeping bag and some notebooks in a, in a backpack and a change of clothes, and I got 5000 bucks, and I, and I went there. <laughs> really? And in the documentary, yeah. you talk about witnessing how the war in Bosnia actually brought people together. And even afterwards, people still talked about having a sentimentality for the war and even longing to return to those days. That's shocking for me and probably a lot of Americans. Most of us can't imagine wanting to go to war once, much less twice. Yeah, I mean, humans instinctively group together in a crisis. Uh, I mean, humans do not survive alone in nature. We die if we're alone. And the worst things are the more collaborative we become in order to survive. And war, in some ways, is the ultimate catastrophe. And that brings out very exceedingly pro-social behaviors in people. And that group identity becomes very, very important. So civilians in a war zone like in Sarajevo, you know, they organized um, home militias to defend their neighborhoods. And they grew grew um, vegetables in the vegetables in the in the median strips of, strips of their highways and and sheltered in basements together and and essentially they reverted to our ancestral past as humans and interestingly for all of the suffering I mean one in five civilians was killed or wounded in that civil war they were basically you know being used for target practice for three years by the Bosnian Serbs um, for all of the terrible suffering a lot of people afterwards a lot of civilians said that they missed the war because they miss the unity that they experienced. That's the core human – that is our core human value is, is unity. And when we experience it like that, it's very hard to give it up. It reminds me a lot of what Brits who survived the London Blitz say. They always talk about sheltering in the tube stations as this collective experience and remember the songs of the era and Churchill with a fondness that almost seems to dwarf the horrible memories of the Blitz. Yeah, exactly. The Blitz is a great example of it. And one of the characteristics of disasters of all sorts, including war, is that it erodes the class distinctions that are um, uh, that bedevil modern society, Western society, and obviously in England too. Uh, so if you're sleeping shoulder to shoulder with complete strangers in the tube station during a German air raid, I mean, it doesn't matter if the person next to you is rich or poor, black or white, it doesn't matter. And there's and there's a wonderful sort of liberation from these awful social identities that happens in war zones and, and in any catastrophe. There, there, I studied a – I looked at a um, – in my, in my book, Tribe, that talks about precisely this, this community aspect of human existence and what happens when you lose it. I looked at an a, 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 um, earthquake in Italy, Avezzano, Italy in 1915 or 16, something like that. And 90-some percent of the population was killed in under a minute. And basically they were hit by a nuclear weapon except it was an earthquake and and the survivors had to had to um 
make do for days before before outside help got there. And one guy who survived this and wrote about it said that the earthquake had delivered uh, – the earthquake had given them what the law promises but cannot in fact deliver, which is the equality of all men. As you rightly point out in Going to War, war used to be just a part of life. It, it was even something to aspire to. Young men wanted to go to war to prove themselves and test their mettle and bring honor back to their family. Increasingly, though, modern society views war as an aberration or even a failure. Is there something that's lost when war becomes such a foreign concept to us? Yeah, I mean, we, we've outsourced all of the means of our survival, our, our food production, our shelter, our security. Um, there's some amazing advantages to that. I mean, that frees people up to produce the incredible Western society, the incredible modern society that we have. We have medicine, we have rule of law, we have philosophy, we have art, you know, we, under, we have science, we understand the origins of the universe to the first billionth of a second or something like that. I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary what <laughs> we've done. But the, re, the, the one profound loss is the loss of community. And, and we know that as as wealth, as affluence goes up in a society, as modernity goes up in a society, the suicide rate tends to go up. The depression rate tends to go up. And it's because of that individualization. Um, and so, the, you know, the, arguably the trick is like how can we have the benefits of modern society but remain in this in this in a, in a close group? I mean – and it's not just about the fact that I don't grow my own food or what have you. I don't depend on the people around me for those things either. You know, when I grew up in a suburb and the, the people that lived around me and the homes around me, I didn't depend on them for anything. I, I didn't even know them, right? There's a real human loss yeah. in, in that. In your most recent book, Tribe, you take this concept of wanting to find common purpose and be part of a community beyond just the military context to broader society. But there's been so much talk over the past years about the growing tribalism in America. Do you think the real concept or purpose of a tribe is being misused or abused now? Yeah, I mean, the word tribe is, is tricky. I mean, you can use it metaphorically to mean a, a group of people that have shared interests and concerns. But really, in a sort of human, in a, in a traditional human sense, it means the group of people that you um, spend your days and hours worth that you depend on for your own survival. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and that's obviously not what we're talking about when we talk about Democrats or Republicans being in a tribe. But that said, um, the idea of a tribal entity that you owe your existence to and that you depend on um, and that you're loyal to. That's a profoundly human experience. Uh, soldiers get it in a platoon in combat. Uh, it's possible to have it even in a group of 350 million people as a nation. I remember after 9-11 in New York City, uh, I live in New York, and, and um, the sense of unity in, in, in New York and in America as a whole transcended everything, race, uh, income, whatever. We were all Americans for a little while. That is a profound sense of tribe. And I think the 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 tragedy and the and arguably the crime that's been committed in the last few years is to turn the political parties into tribes as if the opposite political party is somehow an enemy of the country there's a yeah. zero sum game where one if one wins the other loses and there was a um town hall meeting uh with governor Rick Perry uh, on CNN and the and um, Wolf Blitzer I think asked uh, Governor Perry if there was a person who did not have health insurance but needed an operation and without it they would die but they didn't have health insurance what would he do and before he could answer people in the crowd and the audience started yelling let him die that's wow. not that's not people acting as a nation and 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 that has been 
inflicted on us by powerful people, and and we we must fight back. There are probably better things to build a tribe around than politics, for sure. Well, listen, it's a great strategy if you want to win. I mean, yeah. consolidating <laughs> your appealing to people's tribalism is to consolidate your base, and they and you drive them to the polls, and they elect you. And the problem is, you're consolidating your base and furthering your political career at the expense of the nation, of our idea Mm -hmm. of being a nation that, okay, maybe we have disagreements, policy disagreements, but we are all in this together for better or worse, like a family is. Of course, there are family fights, but that doesn't mean you're not a family. Ideally, that's how the political parties should see each other. And then our policy is a product of a kind of dynamic tension between liberal and conservative that produces something sort of just and equitable in the middle. That's the democratic ideal. And when you start talking about the other side being essentially criminals who are trying to undermine the safety and welfare of the country, when you start using rhetoric like that, contemptuous rhetoric, you are destroying the country. I mean, no other country can destroy this country. We're the most powerful country in the world. Al-Qaeda can't destroy us. They can hurt us. They can't destroy us. Only we can destroy us, and we'll do it with words like that. And I'd be curious what the soldiers think when they see this, when they look back at what's happening politically on the home front with the contentious 2016 election, the ugliness and divisiveness in ways that almost seem unpatriotic. You know, I can't see into their minds. I imagine any um, thoughtful person, veteran or otherwise, um, is is pretty appalled by that. I, I know the ethos within the military of Um, you take care of your own and you make sure at the very least you recover the bodies from the battlefield, that ethos is a very profound, honorable one. And so when you hear Americans saying about other Americans, let them die, on some level, I think that must be absolutely mortifying to some soldiers. This documentary, Going to War, explores the paradox of war because on the one hand, it can be probably a very dehumanizing experience. You're trained to become a killing machine and perhaps even forced to dehumanize the enemy in order to do that. And yet, on the other hand, it can be the most human experience of all because a soldier experiences the full range of human emotions in combat. How do our warriors reconcile those two? Well, I mean, it's interesting. Uh, You could also flip it around. I would say that a lot of sort of modern technology-driven automated life in this country is people living like and functioning like machines. And that when you're in the military and in war, you're actually, what happens is that you're actually turned into a human being and you are profoundly aware of your own mortality, the mortality of those around you. You, there is some understanding, and this is for combat units, right? I mean, obviously a very small percentage of the military is in combat, but particularly for people in those men and those mostly men in those units, um, the idea that, that the, the lives of others is more important to you than your own life is to you. Um, that is a profoundly human thing. I mean, no other, no other animal, even chimpanzees, our closest uh, relatives, our closest species, um, they will not, even chimpanzees will not risk their lives for a same-sex peer. Only humans do that. And so, yeah. and only humans do that when they have to, right? And when you put young men, young people in war, they what happens is that they lo- you lose the primacy of your individuality that's no longer the center of your universe the center of your universe is the group that you're in and that i think there, i think that has characterized human life for hundreds of thousands of years modern society has freed us from that and a wartime situation or any catastrophe puts us back in that ancient way of being and it's very very human yeah in fact i think in the documentary you say that for many of these soldiers 
the deepest love they experience in their life is with their buddies in combat. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I'm not a soldier or a veteran, but from what I saw, that seemed to be the case. I think it, that, that love is probably unrivaled until they have children. And you say that it's not just the big, bold emotions, but it's also just a, a general sense of sadness in war. Uh, describe what that's like from your experience. It takes a while to get to the sadness. I mean, war is a lot of things. It's it's very, very exciting. It's very scary. Um, it can be intoxicating in some ways. It's very meaningful one way or another. It's exceedingly meaningful. If you're a journalist working in it, it feels like the high point of your career, very serious, very serious work that you're doing. Uh, a lot of things that you know, a person could get um, sort of addicted to in a way. And um, But at the end of the day, human beings, you know, war is human beings killing other human beings that are exactly like them. And mm-hmm. uh, young young men mostly killing other young men that they would otherwise might find themselves being friends with. And that when you when you when you finally understand that and it takes a long time because the the other experiences are sort of bolder and more colorful and more attention getting. But when you really understand that, it's a very very um very very sad feeling and once you really tap into that sadness it sort of wipes out the other stuff. And that's what mm-hmm. eventually happened to me after many, many years of war reporting. One of the aspects of this that's always sort of fascinated me is the actual process of making a warrior. Um, in basic training, a soldier gets yelled at, hazed, punished, put down in a way that for the rest of us probably seems borderline abusive. A civilian might ask, why is that necessary? Well, you're trying to turn people who have been individualized by modern society into People will put the welfare of the of their peers of their group ahead of their own, mm-hmm. uh, and it takes a certain amount of deconditioning. You know, I would say that any any group that depends on individuals to put the group first uh, conducts some kind of process like that. Um, sport te- sports teams do it. Uh, street gangs do it. Um, uh, hunting and uh, and and warrior societies in small scale tribal cultures do it. I, I, I mean, this is a, a a universal human behavior when you're trying to get individuals to um, achieve a loyalty to the group that transcends their own self-interest. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with Sebastian Younger when we come back in just a minute. Hey, guys, I want to tell you about Dollar Shave Club. Dollar Shave Club delivers everything you need to look, feel, and smell your best. You name it. Shampoo, conditioner, body wash, toothpaste, hair gel, even body wipes. Dollar Shave Club is my one-stop go-to for all of my toiletries. And I've especially become a huge fan of their amber and lavender calming body cleanser. It smells absolutely fantastic, and it's a great way to get your day going. But all of Dollar Shave Club's products are great and made with top-shelf ingredients that won't break your budget. Plus, shipping is free with your membership. And here's a great way to try a bunch of Dollar Shave Club's products. For just 5 bucks, you can get their Daily Essentials Starter Set. It comes with body cleanser, their amazing wipes, their world-famous shave butter, and their best razor, the Six Blade Executive. Keep the blades coming for a few more bucks a month and add in shampoo, toothpaste, and anything else you need. Check it out at dollarshaveclub.com slash kickass. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash kickass. Now listen up, folks. I want to talk to you about something extremely important. If you have a car, 
you have car insurance. If you have a home, you have home insurance. If you're alive, shouldn't you have life insurance? Four out of ten people don't have life insurance at all. And it's not their fault. It's life insurance's fault. Shopping for life insurance is confusing and it takes forever. So Policy Genius made it easy. Policy Genius is the easy way to compare life insurance online. In just five minutes, you can compare quotes from the top insurers to find the best policy for you. And when you compare quotes, you save money. It's that simple. In fact, Policy Genius has helped over 4 million people shop for insurance and placed over $20 billion in coverage. And they don't just make life insurance easy. They also compare disability insurance, renter's insurance, and health insurance. If you care about it, they cover it. So if you've been putting off getting life insurance, don't put it off any longer. It's never been easier to buy, and rates are at a 20-year low. PolicyGenius.com, the easy way to compare and buy life insurance. Folks, when do you want to start paying less interest on your credit card debt? How about today, with a credit card consolidation loan from Lightstream? Lightstream rewards consumers who have good credit with a great interest rate and no fees. Get a credit card consolidation loan from 5.49% APR with AutoPay. You could save thousands of dollars in interest. Application is 100% online, and you can even get your funds as soon as today. Plus, my listeners get an additional interest rate discount on top of Lightstream's already low rates. The only way to get this discount is to go to lightstream.com slash kick. That's L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash kick. Subject to credit approval, rates include 0.50% auto pay discount available only when you select auto pay prior to loan financing. Terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com for important information about limits on Lightstream loans and same-day funding. And now, back to the podcast. All the soldiers talk about their first moment arriving in the combat field as having some variation of a what-the-hell-am-I-doing moment. For you as a combat reporter, what was that first time like for you? You know, I wound up in Sarajevo uh, in 93 and, and you know, got off the U.N. transport at the um, bullet-riddled Sarajevo airport. And, you know, first thing I heard was machine gun fire for the first time in my life. And I instinctively ducked. It's amazing. I'd never heard it before. <laughs> my body already <laughs> knew what to do. Uh, not that they were shooting at us. But um, uh, I, I, I was, you know, honestly, I, I, I couldn't believe how lucky I was that I was getting to see this. Like, this was an extraordinary thing for me. My... You know, my father was a product of war in Europe, and and I, I never thought I'd see a war. And I was very curious about it. And I, honestly, I couldn't. I, I was very scared, and it went, for not very good reasons, you know. But I was very scared. But mostly, I was extremely grateful that I somehow that this had happened to me. And and uh, I, you know, honestly, I think at least the soldiers that I was American soldiers that I was with over there had some similar feelings. I, mm-hmm. Originally. You know, when they were told they were going to the Korangal Valley in eastern Afghanistan, it was in Kunar province, and no one had ever heard of it. All the fighting seemed to be down in the south. Um, I remember when I heard we were going there, that the unit I was going to be with was going there, I sort of groaned like, oh, my God, that's going to be boring. They're not, they're just, we're just going to be sitting around drinking tea all year. And uh, that's what the soldiers in 2nd Platoon Battle Company also thought, and they were really – they were really bummed about it. Like they, they, they wanted to fight their combat infantry, their airborne, right? They want to fight. And when they heard where they were going, they were very disappointed. So you don't underestimate how much <laughs> certain kinds of soldiers really want to get into it. 
Yeah, you tell the story of when you were on a supply convoy in the Korengal Valley and your Humvee got struck by an IED. For a little while, you were pretty shaken up by that, huh? Oh, absolutely, yeah. That was um, that was one of the moments that changed my relationship to war a little bit. Um, the I wasn't on a deployment. I, you know, I was a journalist. It was my third trip right. into this same unit. Right. I kept going back in, you know, one-month trips, you know, over and over again along with my colleague, Tim Hetherington. And uh, the, the air was tied down by the by the weather, so we went in. I went in on a supply clip, and and um, I was in the sec- I was in the second Humvee in the column, and it got hit, and the bomb went off right under the engine block, and so it protected us, and we were all com- physically completely okay. But I was, I don't know what would have happened if it gone on directly underneath us. Not good things, I don't think. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I was just appalled when I thought about it later, like. Well, it was a matter of a few feet. It was a matter of a, a, guy, a guy pushing a clacker, you know, a half a second too soon. And the idea that so much of your future um, can be determined by so little, uh, uh, it w- just on an existential level was just uh, horrifying to me. And, and it really um, – that was when the sadness started. That was when I started to understand how sad all this really? stuff was. I'm sure no amount of training can possibly prepare you for when you're getting shot at or when you're having mortars lobbed at you. But on some level, I wonder, is there a certain degree of relief when the actual combat begins and it's on and the basic training kicks in as opposed to just the waiting and the excruciating uncertainty? Yeah. And again, I'm not a soldier, but I, I you know, I think the guys, it's like the night before the big game. Everyone's nervous and uh, and hoping that, you know, praying that they, they're going to act well the next day when it counts. Um, so I think there's a lot of tension. A lot of the combat that those guys were in and that I witnessed um, were ambushes that happened without any preparation that you'd always just – all of a sudden you'd, you'd hear gunfire and people would be shooting at you. And, and so in a sense, a lot of the combat happened in the most mundane, boring moments. Uh, and there was not any reason to be nervous before because you didn't know it was coming. But Certainly before the big combat operations and even some of the patrols that were headed down valley into some dicey areas. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I could get pretty worked up before those things. And the soldiers in the film, and I'm sure that you've experienced this with the soldiers you've talked to over the years, talk about having to get into that psychological place where they can mentally dehumanize the enemy and bring themselves to kill another human being. That's got to mess with your brain. I mean, it's not like you can flip that switch on and off at will. How do we get a soldier into that frame of mind without turning them into a total psychopath? Oh, it, it, any of us could do it. It's not hard. If someone's shooting at people you care about, you want to kill them. It's pretty simple. And that's what happens in combat. All of a sudden, your buddies are taking bullets. And I think every, every guy out there was like, all right, I'm going to kill you. You know, it, it, um, we... We all dehumanize people all the time. I mean, we n- nobody looks at uh, people in other parts of the world unconsciously in the same way that we look at our closest our closest neighbors and kin. I mean, it's just it's it's psychologically impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, and if those people that you don't know very well are also trying to kill you, killing them is pretty easy. Is it frightening to the soldiers you've talked to when they realize that they're capable of actually killing someone else? I mean, for them, I mean, I asked one guy about it because they, they killed a guy on a hillside and, and um, you know, it was pretty dramatic. And, and the, when they when they killed him, the guys were whooping, right? They were, they were cheering. And I asked him about it because it felt a little ugly, you know. And uh, you know, I get the need I, – I get the – I understand the need to kill someone who's trying to kill you I, I completely, right? But – you don't necessarily need to cheer afterwards. <laughs> and uh, 
Uh, you know, and this guy was running around on the hilltop trying to escape an A, you know, an A ten warthog that was coming down on him. You know, he didn't have a chance. And uh, and I asked about the cheer, and and this guy said, um, "I was cheering because that's one more guy who's not going to kill my brothers." It's really about that. Many of these men and women come back with PTSD. Um, interestingly, sometimes it doesn't even happen until long after their combat experience. In fact, I think one guy in the documentary said that he didn't have a flashback to Vietnam until 25 years later. That's interesting to me because I always imagined that there was a fluid line between combat experience and the PTSD. Yeah, I mean, my experience with it as a journalist, you know, I'd been going to war zones for a long time before 9-11, so I didn't, I never even heard the term PTSD, but, you know, there were a couple of trips. I came back pretty messed up, but I, I, I mean, I, for a while I couldn't take the subway because I would have panic attacks in the subway. I had no idea it was connected to combat because there weren't any subway. You know, I was in Afghanistan starting in the mid-90s, right? So there were no subways in Afghanistan. Why would I connect that that experience with Afghanistan? There was no reason to. And it, it was PTSD, I now realize. And, you know, for most, I think for 80% of people, PTSD resolves itself within a year, even without treatment. Uh, 20%, yeah, 20% get stuck in a kind of uh, a rut of a trauma loop that they can't get out of. But if you think about it in evolutionary terms, if trauma were completely psychologically incapacitating to a majority of people, um, you know, the human race wouldn't exist. I mean, every time a lion charged into camp, if everyone was psychologically paralyzed for the rest of their lives, we'd all starve to death. I mean, I, I mean, humans, we're the descendants of humans that figured out how to, how to recover from trauma pretty quickly. You say that you experienced some of what soldiers probably feel when your colleague Tim Heatherton was killed, even though you weren't there with him, you weren't even on the same continent. Did you feel something akin to a survivor's guilt that you weren't able to save him? Yeah, I mean, I think if you're in combat with someone, you feel an enormous loyalty and responsibility for them. And if Tim, I mean, Tim was my colleague out there at Restrepo. We made our, our film right. together. We did, shot all the footage. We edited it. I mean, we were we were friends. We were comrades, colleagues, brothers. Uh, very very close. I would have done anything for him. And 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 he. For me, I think, and and had he died in a car accident, I don't think it would have troubled me that much. But he died in combat, and on some level, in my mind, I, I'm, I, my reaction to it was, I should have been there. It should have been me. Uh, it should have been me, not him. I should have been there to to help him. I I failed him, and uh, that took. I was going to say it took a long time to recover from. I I I really haven't recovered from it entirely. So how did you, at the very least, get yourself to a place where that didn't just dominate your life, that depression? Um, I, you know, I think I was quite depressed for a while. I, I, my, my marriage ended, I think, in part because of some of the troubles I was, I was dealing with. Um, uh, so it, it affected me very profoundly. I, you know, part of the problem was, was that I was, we were supposed to be on assignment together, and the last minute I couldn't go, and he went on his own. And mm-hmm. that, I think that was what really got me. Uh, but for yeah. the first time, I understood soldiers who made their— the deaths of their friends in combat, their their fault. And mm-hmm. I never understood it. It made no rational sense. Uh, and then when it happened with Tim, I suddenly understood that something does not need to make rational sense in order to affect you very, very deeply. Were there things that you learned about yourself in that experience? Uh, I, I didn't realize how vulnerable we all are or that I was to um, suffering, uh, mm-hmm. to, re- to regret. Uh, to self-loathing. I mean, I didn't, I, you know, I think I'm typical of most people. I, I didn't realize I had that in me and it, boy, it just jumped on me uh, mm-hmm. so, so quickly, so easily. 
And even without PTSD, a lot of these soldiers have a difficult time reacclimating to civilian life. And one thing that all vets in this documentary talk about is the awkwardness of when a civilian comes up to them and says, thank you for your service. Um, on some level, has that phrase become, I don't know, sort of a bullshit gesture, the social media age substitute for any kind of meaningful appreciation or interaction? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of social interactions that are sort of by rote, like, um, hi, mm-hmm. how are you doing? I mean, no, no one really cares how you're doing, right? I mean, it's just a, right. it's a, it's a pleasantry. And I think it's the pleasantry that's been refined for use with soldiers. And, and um, one of the problems is that it underlines the fact that there's a small, very small minority of people that are in the military and then everyone else is not. And when you say thank you for your service, it somehow – it emphasizes that gap in some ways that I think mm-hmm. are not, is not good. I, I understand um, – and also there are a lot of soldiers who were not in combat. Ninety percent of the military was not in combat. When, when they come back right. from doing a, you know, a job well done but it wasn't a dangerous job and they come back and they're – and they're told that they're heroes. I think some, you know, some people sort of squirm at that a bit, it, you know, because they they don't feel like they did enough, and mm-hmm. uh, so it, it does get complicated. But what I would say about thank you for your service is I understand the problems with it, and um, but if you do feel like saying that, don't stop, don't stop at soldiers, don't stop at veterans. Like we need a lot of different kinds of people in this country. We need school teachers, you know, we need therapists, we need journalists, we need guys who drill for oil so we can drive our cars. You know, like you want to thank people for their service, do it and keep on going and cover everybody because we need everybody. Is there a better way to acknowledge someone who served? I mean, a, a lot of the soldiers in this documentary say that when they want to open up about their experiences to friends and family, the civilians don't want to hear it. And so they bottle it up inside. I mean, it seems to me that at least one fairly simple thing that all of us could do is talking about it. You're talking about people who are very, very close to veterans, so their their spouse or their immediate family. Right. I'm, I mean, you can't expect strangers on the bus to become a your your therapist for half an hour until you get to your stop. <laughs> I mean, obviously, we're not talking about that. So, so we right. we really are talking about the intimates within a veteran's life, and you know, I think there is a sort of personal and moral duty, whether you want to hear it or not. If the person feels like speaking about anything, about their wartime experience or about their trauma from childhood or whatever. It is. I mean, I don't care. What it is. You know, if you're married to someone or in a family or good friends with someone who has some pain that they need to talk about, like, if you're not there to, to listen, you're not their friend. You're not their family. Like, that's one of the definitions of those words. Yeah. So, um, I, you know, at that point, it doesn't matter if you're uncomfortable, if that's something they feel like they need to do. And um, that's just the obligations of family. But, you know, even if it's not family or friends, there's still something that can be done. And I think this gets to a project that you've been working on for a couple of years now, which is an idea to help veterans reintegrate into society. And it's called Veterans Town Halls. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, I, I, I wish I could say I came up with it. I mean, really, you know, I was an anthropologist in college, and I thought that small-scale tribal societies, um, which have, incidentally, very low rates of suicide and depression and things like that, um, that the, my guess was that they did a pretty good job of reintegrating warriors back into the community after combat. And so I looked at some of the um, processes that were used in different small-scale tribal societies. And, t- and typically they involved the warrior the warriors being given a chance to, to sing, to dance, to recount their exploits on the battlefield in front of the community that they fought for. Like we did this for you people. And um, – which is very cathartic for the warrior, but it also 
um, brings it means that the community is now participating morally participating in the act of war. It's their war too. It's mm-hmm. their fight too, and it's all the same things. And and that seemed very very healthy. Okay, we're not. We're a nation of 350 million. We're not going to build a big campfire and all gather around it. Obviously, that's not going to happen. But we all – how can we do this in a modern context? Well, we all live in communities. Every community, city hall, town hall, uh, has a sort of center. And and on Veterans Day, um, my idea is that – and we've started doing this. I I partnered with Representative Seth Moulton of Massachusetts – in the town of Marblehead, and now it's spreading around the country. On Veterans Day, you unlock the town hall. It's not being used for business anyway. You turn on the PA system, and basically any veteran of any war who served in any capacity has the right to speak for 10 minutes about what it felt like to serve the community and the nation in uniform. And you know some people are going to be very, very proud of their service and think that the, their, tour, their tour of duty was the best thing that ever happened to them, and that's going to make some you know, liberal pacifists uncomfortable, right? And then there is some, there's some people who are going to be pretty angry that mm-hmm. the nation made them fight and made them fight the particular war that it did. There are people who are going to be absolutely livid at what they had to do. And that's going to make some um, conservatives, some patriots, some republicans uncomfortable as it should. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's going to be people who stand up and they want to talk, but they can't because they're crying too hard. And that's going to make everyone uncomfortable. But all of those things are war. And if we're – as a nation, if we're going to engage in war, we need to engage in the emotional consequences of it for the people that we have sort of deputized to fight it for us. And not only will that be therapeutic for veterans, um, it seems to be judging by the the, the um, reactions that we've had from people who have gone through this. Um, it will be therapeutic for veterans. But in some ways more importantly, it will bind communities together. It will bind the nation together. It will make us all feel like we're part of something great and something noble and something where we're dedicated to each other and sharing in, a, in the experience of being a nation. And that, again, no other country is going to destroy this country, but we could destroy ourselves if we tried. And, and I think these veteran town halls are a way of buttressing this nation against that danger. Yeah, I think it's a wonderful idea. Uh, the other day I had Max Brooks on the program and he said something to the extent of when we don't do something like that, when we don't build some kind of connection with our warriors, we run the danger of creating a warrior caste that perhaps the rest of society sees as expendable. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. Um, and I should say, I, I hope this doesn't sound like self-promotion, but I do want people to have the information. If you go to my website, SebastianYounger.com, there's a page called Veteran Town Hall. And if you mm-hmm. click on that, it gives you very, very simple directions about how to do it. It costs nothing. And tra- in your hometown, in your home city, try to set it up for, for next Veterans Day. It's an amazing, amazing experience. And having spent so much time with the men and women in uniform, you seem to be uh, on some level uniquely aware or in tune to their needs. Uh, suppose the president made you Secretary of Veteran Affairs. Before we go, uh, what would be the first things that you would want to change? Wow, that's an image. Uh, it's going to take me a moment to process that one. Um, <laughs> okay. um, well, I what are, in general, I, what do you, yeah, you see I mean, that I needs heard, to be addressed? I heard that there's a an a, a initiative to privatize the VA. I think that's uh, probably not a wise idea. I think I would mm-hmm. probably fight against that. And also, I would think, I mean, one of the most healthful things for people psychologically is to feel needed, to feel necessary, to contribute to the common good. 
So what I, what I would want is for the clinicians, um, the doctors within the VA, to balance the good of taking care of people who are who need financial help after the war, to balance that good with the good of returning them to service to, in the society. If you warehouse people on $3,200 a month tax-free, that they can basically live on for the rest of their lives because they have a service-related disability of any sort. When you sort of warehouse people like that, you're condemning them to a lifelong struggle against feeling unnecessary and useless and ultimately depressed, which is not an mm-hmm. outcome we want. So I think that basic sort of contradiction of, oh, if we if we take care of people, we're, we put the, them at risk of feeling like they're not needed anymore. Like figuring that balance out I think is crucial to really re- providing really holistic care of all of our human needs, all of their human needs. Absolutely. Well, Going to War airs Memorial Day, May 28th at 9 p.m. Eastern on PBS. Sebastian Younger, thanks so much for talking with me. My pleasure. Thanks again to Sebastian Younger for joining me on the podcast. Going to War airs Memorial Day, May 28th at 9 p.m. Eastern and Pacific on PBS. To learn more, visit pbs.org. Keep up with Sebastian Younger at SebastianYounger.com or on Twitter at at Sebastian Younger. I also want to remind you to check out adiamore.com slash kick for a huge selection of diamonds and jewelry. When I recently decided to pop the question, I shopped around, but no one beat adiamore.com for the best price and the very best quality. All of Adiamore's diamonds are GIA certified, and their rings come with a lifetime guarantee against material defects. Plus, Adiamore gives you 30 days to evaluate the deal and make sure that you're 100% happy with your purchase. That's because the folks at Adiamore know that once you find a jeweler you can trust, you've got a jeweler for life and you'll keep coming back year after year. So do yourself a favor. If you're shopping for an engagement ring or a gift, even if you think you're going to go somewhere else, before you make that big decision, you owe it to yourself to click on adiamore.com kick. Look at their selection and compare. That's adiamore.com slash kick, A-D-I-A-M-O-R dot com slash kick. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on iTunes and leave us a review. You can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at at kickassnewspod. And as always, I welcome your comments, questions, and ideas at comments at kickassnews.com. I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News. Kick-Ass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.